Thanks for tuning in to the Follow Church weekly message. Our hope and prayer is that you will find this message uplifting and challenging as we seek to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. Luke chapter 2, 22, all the way to verse 40. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. This is Jesus. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped day and night, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Uh, Morning, everyone. Great to see you all. Uh, Before we get started, let's just pray uh, that God will be with us as we do this. Father God, we thank you uh, for your word. Help us today um, as we read it. Help us to understand it. We know, Lord, that it's only through your Holy Spirit that it can be revealed. Father, I know that I won't get everything right today, but even as I stumble through, I ask that you use my words to challenge, encourage, and convict those who are here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, This week, some friends of myself and Mary had their first child. Uh, I was pretty excited because it had been quite a long pregnancy, nine months, and I was starting to get a little bit bored with it. Uh, So it's nice to finally have a little girl arrive. Uh, It was a pretty long and tiring birth. They were in the hospital for five days, I think, and I didn't get a lot of updates via text or social media. But the baby finally popped out, and I'm doing pretty well now. Thank you. (laughs) So we're going to go in and visit them tomorrow, and I'm looking forward to that. Babies are a pretty big deal. We love to get excited about new babies, and people always want to have a hold or have a look. Whenever someone brings a new baby to church, I can't help but feel a little bit sorry for the parents. It's not that we don't like the parents, or that we aren't happy to see them, but... 
I wouldn't blame them if they felt a little inferior to their babies. We walk up to the parents and we do the, oh, hi, you, oh, hi, isn't it cute? Oh, can I touch it? Oh, look at its little hands, look at its little feet. We get super excited about the baby and the parent is sort of left there, standing there, oh, yeah, I'm doing well, thank you. Child dedications are another good example. We had one today. Poor Luke stands up the front and says a bunch of stuff about the baby and how we're supposed to bring them up to know God and that sort of thing. But I find, and you probably noticed this today, half the time we don't really listen to what he's saying. We're watching the baby. We want to see what it does. We want to see if it's smiling. Well, that wasn't the case today. Is it going to reach out and touch Luke? Is it going to grab the microphone? Is it going to concentrate really hard? Because we all know what's happening there. It's always funny when we see that. Anyway, in today's passage, we're, we have a young couple by the name of Mary and Joseph, and they're taking a trip to Jerusalem with their newborn baby. And it's unsurprising that there are some people there in the temple who want to see the baby. One of them is a righteous man by the name of Simeon, and the other one is an elderly prophetess by the name of Anna. But as we know, this was no ordinary baby, and this was no ordinary first meeting. So today I want us to look a little bit deeper into who this baby really was, and what he came for, and what he should mean to us. So let's have another look at the passage and see what God has to say in this account. Uh, If you've got your Bibles with me, I encourage you to have them open. Um, I'm going to sort of do a little bit of an overview of a few things, and then we're going to go through Um, The first thing that stood out to me when I read this passage was there's a lot of stuff in there about the law. Now, most of the times when we hear the word law in the Bible, we're not talking about laws that were made by some king or legislation put through by a government. We're talking about God's laws, most of which are recorded in the first five books of the Old Testament. And there's lots of laws in different categories. We have civil laws that deal with culture and behaviour, The ceremonial laws, which are all about customs and sacrifices and clean and unclean stuff. And we have moral laws that are all about justice and judgment and sexual conduct and that sort of thing. And Luke points out a number of times in chapter 2 that Mary and Joseph were following the laws. We read that Jesus gets circumcised on the eighth day as per the law. We read that they go to the temple for Mary's purification according to the law. And we see Jesus presented before God as the firstborn as written in the law. And then at the end of the section, it says, when they had done everything required by the law. So why does Luke go into the law so much? What's the relevance of bringing up the law so often? Is it to show that Mary and Joseph were good law-abiding citizens? I don't think so. He could have said that in one verse. I think he wants to highlight that the law was pointing to Jesus. Often at this time of year, we have readings from prophets like Malachi or Isaiah, uh, because they're super obvious examples of how the Old Testament points to Jesus. But in fact, all of the Bible, including the laws, point to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. 
Now, sometimes it's a little less obvious how the Old Testament laws point to Jesus, so I'm going to try to highlight an example for you now. Uh, Let's take a look at this idea of Jesus being presented as the firstborn. It's in verses 22 and 23, if you're following along. Luke quotes from God's instructions in the book of Exodus, chapter 13, where it says, the firstborn of every Israelite is to be consecrated to the Lord. Uh, This dates back to uh, the Old Testament when God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, uh, which, of, of course, is when God killed every firstborn son living in Egypt, both people and animals. Except God created a way to save the Israelite firstborn kids, didn't he? He told the Israelites to put uh, to slaughter a lamb instead and put the blood of the lamb over the doorways. And when the angel of God passed through, it would pass over the homes that had the lamb's blood on the doorway. Now, we know this story pretty well. It's a Uh, fairly popular narrative from the Old Testament. What you might not be as familiar with, however, is what came afterwards. After that time, God said to the Israelites, from now on, I want you to dedicate every firstborn to me. Every firstborn son, I want you to dedicate into my service. It's almost as though the Passover curse was still hanging there. The cost of being rescued was still there. Slaughtering the lambs in Egypt didn't really pay the whole debt, and God wanted to remind them of that. But the Israelites knew that it wouldn't be forever. The laws were pointing forward to one day when a Passover lamb would be provided that would be sufficient. Who were they waiting for? Jesus. Anyway, that law was passed down in Exodus, and that's where we got the first priests. They were the firstborns. They were dedicated to God's service. And it was the priest's role to intercede between God and his chosen people, Israel. But those priests weren't the perfect solution. Those priests were weak. They were sinful. They were corruptible. But God promised that one day he would send a great high priest who would perfectly intercede for his people before God. Who was that? Jesus. Later down the track in the book of Numbers, God commands that rather than the firstborn sons being dedicated as priests, the tribe of Levi would take on that role. And while the firstborn sons would still be dedicated to the Lord, they could be redeemed for the price of five shekels. So according to tradition, your firstborn son belonged to God, but you were expected to buy them back or redeem them for the price of five shekels. But this too was a symbol, a sign looking forward to one day when a great redeemer would come and redeem his people once and for all. Who was that? Jesus. So I think by referencing the law here, Luke is reminding his readers of what the law is all about and who it is pointing toward. Throughout Old Testament history, there is this ongoing expectation for the one to come. Moving forward, uh, verse 22 back in Luke says that they were in the temple for two reasons. The first one was the redemption thing that I just spoke about. They were going to redeem Jesus. And the other one was for Mary's purification ritual. According to the laws laid out in Leviticus, a woman was ceremonially unclean for seven days after giving birth to a son. And then she had to wait another 33 days before she could go into the sanctuary or touch anything holy. 
So once that time was over, the woman was to go down to the temple and do this purification ritual. So we're assuming that Jesus is around about 40 days old now. And one of the things you had to do as part of this purification ritual was to bring a sacrifice. In Leviticus chapter 12, we read that the sacrifice required was a one-year-old lamb and a bird. But if the woman is poor and can't afford it, the law has this provisional clause in it that says she can just bring two birds instead. Now, if you notice from our passage in Luke, it says that they brought two birds because they couldn't afford the lamb. They were poor. Now, Luke includes this in the gospel because the poverty that Jesus came into is meant to be striking. Theologians call this idea the condescension of Christ. That's where we get the word condescending from. And this is the Son of God that we're talking about. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, there's a degree to which he's humbled simply by coming down to earth in human form. But he went beyond that, didn't he? He came down as a helpless baby, but not even the son of an earthly king or a rich man or an important ruler. He came down to the family of a humble carpenter from Nazareth and to a poor teenage girl who couldn't even afford a lamb to sacrifice. Why does this matter? Why is it pointed out to us? Because it tells us something about God. He isn't just interested in the rich and the important. He cares for the broken, the downtrodden, the poor and the oppressed. Paul's metaphor from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 comes to mind. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Anyway, they're at the temple, and we're introduced to this character, Simeon. And it says that Simeon was a righteous man. He was a devout man. Now, when we say righteous and devout, I'm not talking about one of those pious church leaders or Pharisees that we hear a lot about in the Gospels. This is the good, godly man, and it says that the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it says that it's been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he will not die until he has seen the Lord's Messiah. And I'm guessing he's been waiting a while for this. All the Jewish people at the time were waiting for the Messiah, but there's something about Simeon that seems to be sort of next-level waiting. He's been thinking about this. He's been praying about this. He's probably been studying his scriptures, and he's actively looking forward to the day when the Messiah would come. And it says that Simeon is moved by the Spirit, and he recognises Jesus, the baby, for who he really is. And just in case Mary and Joseph don't fully understand, he comes over to them in the temple, and he reveals a few things. Now, often when you look at a little child for the first time, you might say something like, oh, wow, he has his father's eyes, or, oh, he's got his mum's mouth. Uh, my wife, Mary, is from an Egyptian background, and she's convinced that any kids that we have are going to be identifiable because they'll be super hairy. But Simeon goes much deeper than any comments about the baby's appearance, doesn't he? Let's have a look at what he says in verse 30. In verse 30, he says that Jesus is the Lord's salvation. No, he didn't say, I have seen part 
of your salvation, he recognized that the entirety of God's salvation was in the person of Jesus Christ. He said, I have seen your salvation, now I can die in peace. Jesus was enough for Simeon. Now, this is a good man. He's a devout man. If you were to make a list of people that you thought were good enough to get into heaven on their own, Simeon would probably be right up there. And yet, he recognised that he had nothing to contribute to his own salvation. It was all in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, that was enough for Simeon to say to God, my eyes have seen your salvation, now you may dismiss your servant in peace. He was at peace to die because he had assurance of his salvation in Jesus Christ. I wonder if you could say the same thing. I'm not sure how many of you have heard my testimony, but this was something that I struggled with for many years. I was always worried about dying as a child because I was never sure from one day to the next whether I was going to be good enough to get into heaven. I knew that I wanted to be there. I knew that I loved God, but I questioned myself. And if you think that you play a role in your own salvation, that's the way you've got to live. Because as good as you think you are, you are never going to be good enough. It's only when you recognize Jesus as your entire salvation that you can be sure as Simeon was sure. Now you may dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. In verse 32, he states that this salvation will stretch beyond the Jews. He describes Jesus as a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Now this is hinted at in the book of Isaiah, but Simeon spells it out. God's salvation is not just for the Jews, it's for everyone. Now that's good news for you and me who aren't Jewish. I don't think we have any Jewish people here. And Mary and Joseph respond really positively to this news. Who doesn't like hearing great things about their child? It says that they marvel at what was said. They're amazed. They may have had some idea of who this child was from what the angels told them, but Simeon's words still seem to have a pretty big impact. But Simeon also has some more sobering things to say to the couple, things you wouldn't normally say to a new parent. In verse 34, it says, here's a sign that will be spoken against. There's going to be opposition to Jesus. He says that he is destined to cause the rising and falling of many and that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And then you can almost feel the hesitation when he turns to Mary and he says, a sword will pierce your own soul too. He predicts the heartbreak at the foot of the cross. When most of the disciples had run away in hiding, Mary is left at the foot of the cross, looking up at her dying son before her eyes. You see, Jesus came with a purpose. Jesus came on a mission. And his destiny was always there before him, even as a little baby, 40 days old and being brought into the temple. Jesus' future is being pointed to. Sometimes I think we tend to lose a little bit of sight of this 
at Christmas. For those of us here today that are Christians, we're very conscious about remembering the Christmas story at this time of year, that Jesus was God and that he came to earth as a baby. And it's all very well and good to celebrate Jesus coming to earth as a baby. The incarnation of God is a very profound and amazing thing. And I don't want to detract from that at all today. But what I want you to remind you of is why it had to happen. Jesus came to save us. Simply coming into the world was not enough. For Jesus to be the saviour of the world, like Gabriel proclaimed in Matthew chapter 1, and as the angels saying to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, coming into the world as a baby was not going to cut it. Jesus came to live the perfect life because we couldn't. And he came to die in our place because we deserved it. And I'll say it again in case it didn't sink in. Jesus came to live the perfect life because we couldn't and to die in our place because we deserved to die. Simeon knew this. Simeon read the signs in Scripture and through the Holy Spirit, he knew what was going to happen. And so he praised God. Straight after Simeon, this lady, Anna, shows up in the temple. Oh, shows up in the conversation anyway. It says that she's always been in the temple. And like Simeon, she has been waiting, waiting for Jesus. And when she sets her eyes upon the baby with his parents, it says she gives thanks to God and speaks about the child to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, the original passage I was given for today stopped at verse 34, but I really wanted to go up until verse 40 because I wanted to keep this part in about Anna because I think she sets a great example for us. It tells us that Anna is old. She's been with her husband for seven years and then widowed until age 84. Some commentators even interpret, interpret the original text as saying that she had been widowed for 84 years, placing her at an age around 105. So she's, she's an old lady. And the text says that she is faithful and devout. She never left the temple and she was always worshipping and fasting and praying. And Luke doesn't give a lot of other details about Anna. And it made me wonder, if she's spending all of her time in the temple, does she live there? Who provides for her? Does she have a job? If she's, how is she in such good health, given she's so old and she spends all this time fasting? If I miss one meal, or if I don't have a coffee in the morning, I cease to function. <laughs> but whatever is the answer to those questions, she makes it work, and she sets this wonderful example as a woman of God. She earnestly waits for her Messiah. She longs for what was promised. And after seeing the child, she gives thanks to God and she speaks about the child to all who are looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Like Simeon, she understood God's promises. Like Simeon, she was waiting for her saviour and like Simeon, she recognised him when she saw him. Which leads me to my application, then I'll wrap it up. It's impossible not to read this passage and admire the faithfulness of Simeon and Anna without asking ourselves, am I like that? Does Jesus have the same impact in my life as he had in Simeon and Anna's? 
How do you see Jesus? Do you recognise him as being the person that all of history points toward? Do you see him as the solution to all of the world's problems? Does your life reflect dependence and centeredness around Jesus? At the start of this message, I said that babies are a big deal. Is Jesus a big deal to you? Does he feature in your life the way that he featured in Anna and Simeon's? Sometimes I feel for me personally that the longer I know Jesus, the smaller he can become in my life. When I first became a Christian, he was a big deal. But as my life goes on and other things come up, Jesus can get pushed to the side. He can get shrunk. He can get moved to the peripherals. I get so focused on me and my life and my world that I forget to thank God and praise God for what he's done and for what he's doing. I wonder if you're the same. Maybe this morning you don't know Jesus. Perhaps you've come along because a friend invited you or perhaps you've realised that there's something missing in your life and you aren't sure what it is. Regardless of whether or not you're a Christian today, the answer is still the same. This Christmas, Jesus is the big deal. He wants you to recognise him for who he is, the perfect saviour for you and me. Thanks for listening to our message this week. If it stirred your heart and you would like to talk to someone more about it or pray with someone, please get in touch with us at info at follow.church and one of our pastoral team will get back to you as soon as possible. If you'd like more information about Follow and our various ministries, including weekly service times and location, please check out our website, www.follow.church. Thanks again for joining us. God bless. God bless.